Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, My name is Matt. For those of you who I haven't met, I'm one of the leaders here. We are uh, continuing in our series through the book of Genesis, uh, which will fit into our larger journey, uh, which is year-long cover-to-cover through the scriptures, Genesis to uh, Revelation. We are uh, picking up this morning in Genesis 1, verse 1. And uh, if you were here with us last week, you know that we talked about the first verse in the Bible, and only the first verse in the Bible. And we talked about different interpretations of verse 1, and uh, the reality of scientific evidence pointing increasingly uh, toward uh, the reality of a creator behind the universe. And uh, that the, uh, the more that we study physics and cosmology and genetics and ecology, in theory, the more we will believe in a creator God and be drawn to worship him. Because the evidence from science points overwhelmingly in that direction. But that still begs the question, what is the relationship between faith and science? Does the study of science always point toward God? Is there tension between faith and science? Do we perceive a tension between faith and science? And how does it all fit together? What is Genesis trying to tell us? And are we listening? We'll pick up in uh, Genesis 1, uh, verse 1, and uh, we'll read a few more verses this week than we did last week, and then spend some time uh, contemplating those questions together. And for those of you who know my story, uh, I have a particular passion for kind of uh, the relationship between faith and science, because uh, all my growing up years, science was my favorite subject, was incredibly passionate about it. Uh, and then encountered Jesus and felt called to be a pastor, but never really learning. And hopefully by the end, we'll have a clearer view of how those things fit together and what the book of Genesis, particularly chapters 1 and 2, are really all. Jesus, we uh, come to you this morning uh, recognizing that as we sang a couple minutes ago, you are the living God. Uh, You are alive and present among us. Uh, Most of us in this room have encountered you as the living God, have placed our faith in you, have given our lives over to you. And uh, we recognize um, that all of Scripture uh, is your truth and that we long to understand it on the deepest level we can, actually enjoy and long to learn more about that as well. Um, But all of this happens under the banner of um, your resurrection and the reality that you're alive and that you're here with us. And we pray, God, that you would uh, open up our hearts and minds today and teach us uh, how to pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 1, page 1 of your Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And on it goes. Uh, Seven days of creative process, which seem to fly in the face of modern science. What is happening during these seven days? Are they literally 24-hour periods? What is God actually doing during these seven days? We'll explore some of those questions next week. But it goes without saying that the opening chapters of Genesis have set the stage for what we perceive to be a major, if we're being asked to choose. Uh, Either we believe in God and the scriptures, or we believe in science. But can we have both? Well, for centuries, the answer was a clear and emphatic yes. Historically, there was relatively little tension between science and science were actually people of faith. And so you can go back and look to Newton and Galileo and Pascal and Kepler, and they were men who had faith in God. In fact, in many cases, it was precisely because they believed in God and they believed he created the universe and that perhaps the God who created moral law has actually created other laws governing other aspects of the universe. And it was that faith uh, that sent them searching and studying the physical created world. Perhaps, they said, because God created the universe, it is a dependable place that could be understood on a deeper level. Faith in God propelled the study of creation, and study of his creation stoked faith in the God who created it. But fast forward centuries up into the present, and that narrative has been replaced by a new one, in which science is somehow threatening to faith. And we could unpack some of the recent cultural tension that's led up to this moment with modern, more progressive readings of Scripture, then spawning what we would call fundamentalism and the two going at war. And there's a lot of backstory there. But the point is that a lot of the modern controversy between science and faith has centered around Genesis 1 and the story of creation. And one of the narratives that more of the uh, atheist naturalist side is attempting to advance is this idea that God is a God of the gaps. By a show of hands, how many of you have heard that phrase before? God of the gaps. A couple of you. Okay. 
So the idea behind the God of the gaps narrative is uh, that God is basically a myth Thousands of years before the advent of modern science, we didn't really have the language to describe what was happening in the natural world. Therefore, we just kind of said, oh, it's God. And what makes water fall from the sky in the form of rain? And what causes lightning to strike? And what, what uh, creates a baby in the womb? Well, we don't really know, so we'll just say it was God. But over time... As our scientific understanding has increased, uh, the phenomenon which we've attributed to God uh, would then decrease over time. And now we know uh, how uh, rain and water cycles work, what causes the rain. Now we understand static electricity and what causes lightning. Now we understand in a really deep, almost microscopic level what's happening as, as a baby is conceived and then grows from there. And so the, the story would go that as uh, science advances, we have less and less need for God. So for you uh, visual learners out there, I, I want you to picture this theory or this narrative as a pie. And the God of the gaps theory says that God and science are fighting over the pie. Uh, we used to explain everything with God, but the more science advances, the less we need God. Uh, fast forward far enough as you see the world is decreasing, and, and according to their narrative, well, eventually, science will advance so far that we won't need God at all. We can finally sort of discard and rid ourselves of this uh, outdated myth and be ushered into this grand atheistic scientific age. Are you with me so far? Okay, so that's the God of the gaps idea. There's one pie and they're fighting over it. And if you subscribe to that theory, then you will naturally think about science and faith as being in tension because they're fighting over the right to explain how the world works. And from the scientific side, you're going to, to look out and say, hey, you know, God is an outdated myth and we need to give him up. We can explain everything on our own. Thank you very much. We don't need him anymore. And then you've got people on the faith side saying, hey, science is this threatening, antagonistic force uh, which is trying to discredit scripture and undermine my faith. And the two kind of go at each other. Are, are you with me so far? All of that gets framed around this God of the gaps idea. The problem is, that the relationship between faith and science should not be represented by a pie over which they fight, but rather as different layers of the same cake. I would argue that the relationship between faith and science is better represented this way. Imagine two layers of a cake in which the top layer is that which is immeasurable and mostly physical, and the bottom layer is that which is a non-measurable, or what we would call uh, metaphysical. And uh, by definition, 
science in its very nature is going to study what? What is science after? Measuring. Science is after what is measurable, and, and that amounts to mostly what is physical. So the study of science, the discipline of science, uh, is limited to what you can measure. If you can measure it, then you would say, hey, science is a great discipline to use. Science thrives in what is observable and repeatable and provable. And that's how those theories are generated. That's what science is. That's what it does. But by definition, then, science is not going to deal in the deeper reality or the metaphysical in which I would place things like meaning and purpose and theology and God's role and activities in creation. All of that is a not observable, non-measurable phenomenon. Uh, how are we going to see and understand things in the deeper reality, which science cannot see? We would say, well, that's revelation. The only way to see and understand the deeper layer of reality is through revelation, it's through God, and I don't mean the book of Revelation, I mean like God revealing himself, God revealing, and so all of scripture is revelation from God, and, and, and that's the beauty and value of scripture, is that it's this revelation from God that's going to tell us the meaning, the purpose, God's role and activities in creation, all of this metaphysical stuff that the discipline of science uh, would be unable to tell us. Are you with me so far? Okay, so science is focused on the measurable, which is mostly the physical. Revelation is focused on the non-measurable, metaphysical, what's happening in the spiritual realm, meaning, purpose, God's role in creation. Okay, so to make this a little easier to grasp, what I want to do is just run a few quick examples through this lens and then turn our attention to the book of Genesis itself. So, an example that you could run through this lens is um, babies, okay? So, uh, picture, uh, think of some of the things that Scripture says about uh, babies or about you. The Scriptures say that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, the scriptures say that God knits us together in the womb, that God creates us and he fashions us, each one of us, okay? That's how babies come into being, according to the scriptures. But then science comes along and says, actually what is happening here is two sets of DNA are, are being combined. And, and after they've bound, then they uh, get these messages, they begin multiplying, and then they begin building a spine and organs and those kind of multiply out. And that's how babies are made. That's how you get a human being. Um, and, and here, come, you can watch the whole thing under a microscope. I'll show you how it works. Therefore, according to the pie theory, it wasn't God. It, we used to say it was God. Now we can watch it under a microscope. Therefore, God's role in the creation of human beings is shrinking over time. Is that making sense so far? If God is a God of the gaps, then he just lost more ground. 
Uh, he, he just yielded more to science because now we know a ton more about how babies are formed in the womb and how they grow. It wasn't God. Here, let me show you. Let's watch it occur in the physical realm. But if you take the layered cake model approach, then it shifts the conversation entirely. Science is observing a ton in the physical realm, but it actually can't tell us anything about the metaphysical. So you can watch a baby being formed, but it doesn't actually tell you anything about the meaning and purpose of a human being. Are you with me? Science can never get to the deeper reality. It can never tell you those sorts of things. And think of it this way. If God is actually forming a human being, and human beings are physical, then you should be able to observe it in the physical realm. It will manifest itself in something that you can observe. And so I would argue that the two are not mutually exclusive, but that science and scripture are actually describing the same event from different angles. Have I lost you? So when it comes to a human being being formed, science would describe it using this language. Two sets of DNA are combining together to form a new human being, and on and on and on it would go. Revelation would describe the exact same event using these sorts of words. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God knit you together in the womb. You have a soul, and you are an image bearer of the living God. Science as a discipline is telling you what's happening in, in the physical, observable, provable reality. Revelation is telling you the meaning, the purpose, the theology, God's role and activity in this creation. So both sets of statements are true. They are just describing the same phenomenon from different angles. To say it another way, science is focused on how it happens, and revelation is focused on the deeper meaning of why it is happening and what it means, the purpose of it. And you can run thousands of observable phenomenon through this grid. Your lungs right now are rising and falling. And depending on how much I'm boring you, they may be rising or slowing faster or slower, right? But your lungs are rising and falling. Science can observe them rising and falling. Science can give us all sorts of information about how your lungs work, what makes them tick, and how, do, what is, how does that relate to you know, the brain stem and the messages being sent. And, and it can give us a ton of information. And it's a very useful discipline when it comes to things you can observe in the physical world. But it is also a limited discipline. And it cannot tell you why your lungs are rising and falling. And so you open up the scriptures and it says, actually, God gives the breath of life to everything that has life in it. All of life is, is, is rooted in God. It comes from him. It's a gift from him. Your life is on loan from him. Well, why am I here? What's the purpose of a human life? Okay, let's keep reading. And, and you're going to find out what that is. All of that 
is the revelation of why, why are my lungs rising and falling? Why am I here? Science can, can never tell you that. Science cannot look under a microscope and say, ah, I see the image of godness. Here it is. It cannot tell you your meaning. It cannot tell you your purpose. It cannot tell you why. I remember um, vividly being in college and uh, watching a documentary with my friend uh, called Into the Universe by Stephen Hawking. And uh, for those who don't know, Stephen Hawking is a, a brilliant scientist and uh, I believe an atheist as well. And he, he knows way more about uh, black holes and supernovas than I ever will. Scientifically, he, he knows his stuff. He's brilliant. And I was watching with my friend who's not a follower of Jesus. And we're like three episodes in. And I'm thinking like, this is amazing. Like this stuff is crazy. And just like three episodes in, right in the middle of like talking about black holes and supernovas, Stephen Hawking just says, kind of out of the blue, and, and that's why we know uh, that life is an accident. All of life is one glorious accident in the universe. And, and all of a sudden, like my alarm bells are going off, right? Like, whoa, 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 wait a second. There's some problems with that. One, you didn't list any evidence to, to support that conclusion. Two, much of the evidence we do have is pointing the opposite direction. But even more importantly, for our purposes this morning, what he's doing is he's making a metaphysical conclusion based on his study of the visible physical universe. Are you with me? That's a violation of kind of the boundaries and rules of science. To say, I can observe these things happening in the physical realm, therefore I know that you have no purpose. Do you see that? And 99% and of viewers aren't going to catch that. They're, not gonna real, they're just going to kind of swallow the whole thing and say, well, he knows a lot more than I do. But what he's doing is overstepping the bounds of science and by faith, jumping to a metaphysical conclusion. And some of the problems that have been generated, the tension we feel between faith and science, often comes when scientists are trying to make metaphysical conclusions and when the reverse is happening and you have theologians who are trying to tell scientists how things work. Are you with me? When, when people stay within the realm of their discipline, the two function very well together. And, and I'm going to argue that they actually fuel each other, that they're, they're meant to operate side by side, that each one grows us in appreciation of the other. But the problem comes when someone operating in one realm tries to make the jump over and say now, and, and you kind of have people in both fields saying, hey, 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 don't tell me how to do my job. You know? The, the theologians and all of us are opening the scriptures saying, whoa, don't, you actually don't have any right to look at atoms and molecules and then make metaphysical conclusions about purpose and image of God and God's role in creation. But we have to be careful to not make the reverse mistake as well. To say, hey, we have, we have the purpose and meaning stuff that science can never give us 
But sometimes we overstep that and jump into telling scientists how the world works. And they're observing the world saying, I actually don't think you have a right to, to tell me that's how it works. Are you with me? So the tension is not inherent in the disciplines, but rather the tension comes when, when someone in one realm uh, try, tries to take a bite out of the, the wrong layer of the cake, so to speak, tries to reach over the boundary and tell someone else uh, what to do. Are you with me so far? Have the last 20 minutes made any sense at all? Okay, perfect. So I'm going to argue these are two layers of a cake that are meant to function flawlessly and beautifully side by side. They're meant to flavor each other. They're meant to support one another. But they're operating in different realms, and therefore they will always describe the same phenomenon from different angles. And we can't be alarmed by that, and we can't slip back into thinking about it as a pie. Because if it's two layers of a cake, then our revelation and understanding can expand and contract, and our scientific understanding can expand and contract, and neither one threatens the other. Are you with me? That's at the base of the disciplines. But I know what you're thinking. What about Genesis? That's all fine and great that one is measurable and one's non-measurable reality. But what about the book of Genesis? I mean, at the end of the day, isn't there irreconcilable tension here? Doesn't Genesis give us specific information that flies in the face of scientific findings? To which I would say, yes, it, it has. And we'll look at some of the top theories of Genesis uh, next week. Uh, but the one thing that every theory agrees on is that God created the universe out of nothing and it had a beginning. And for centuries, science flat out disagreed with that assertion. For hundreds if not thousands of years, the scientific theory of the universe was that it was eternal, where the phrase used is this eternal, steady state. And, and for centuries, the scientists said, as far as we can tell, the universe has always been, and it will always be. It's this steady, sort of unchanging thing. That's what science was telling us. And people of faith were opening up the scriptures and reading it and saying, no. Actually, we believe that the universe had a beginning. And we believe that the universe is not eternal. Only God is eternal and he created the universe. It had a beginning and it will have an end. Well, that was a grind between the faith community and the scientific community for hundreds of years. It wasn't until Albert Einstein in the theory of relativity that things began to shift. So imagine thousands of years of the faith community saying the universe had a beginning and thousands of years of those within the scientific community saying, you guys are whack. Like, get with it. Like, get your head out of that book and start looking at reality. And all of a sudden, Albert Einstein comes along 
And he starts crunching the numbers and he's saying, wait a second, this isn't adding up. The, the constants that I'm putting in here are not getting me to the right results. The steady state eternal universe model isn't working. And he crunched the numbers and he, he came out with an expanding universe. And if the universe is expanding, then that means it had a beginning, that it actually started at a single fixed point and, and burst into reality. From nothing, the universe exploded into being. Something that the faith community had been insisting for thousands of years. And, and he was running the numbers and his initial reaction was, I must have made a mistake here. There, I, I must be missing something in my calculation because that, that can't be true. And yet, the more they ran the numbers, the more clear it became. So that was one obvious clash between uh, the discipline of science and the practice of faith from the book of Genesis. That was one clash uh, that has only recently been resolved. But that still leaves the rest of Genesis 1. So that was just verse 1 and the controversy it created. What about the rest of Genesis 1? Isn't there real concrete disagreement here? I mean, doesn't Genesis say that the earth was created in seven days and that it's really quite young? And isn't science telling us that the world is billions of years old? So those are, those are ir irreconcilable, right? And if you want to know the answers to those questions, come next week, and we'll talk about it. But in the meantime, before we even get there, I, I want to end this morning by highlighting some basic principles that should guide our interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. And I think that these principles have everything to do with the perceived tension between faith and science. So if you're taking notes, uh, two quick observations about Genesis 1 and 2. First, is that Genesis was written in the genre of their day. And second, as a result, we have to ask how the original audience would have interpreted it. Genesis was not written in English for 21st century Americans. It, it was written thousands of years ago in a different language, in a different time, in a different place, to a different culture. And so uh, the, the best guesses about Genesis is that it was likely written by Moses uh, after the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt, and it was part of this five-book series that established the Israelites' identity as the people of God. That, that's kind of the basic summary of what it is. Now, does it hold value for all people, for all time? Absolutely. Is it inspired by God himself? Absolutely. Is it authoritative for us as a community? Yes. Is it true? Yes. Whatever Genesis is telling us is true. The question becomes, what is it telling us? And we have to start that interpretive journey by identifying what it is that we're reading. 
Because we tend to approach Genesis with the assumption that we are picking up a scientific textbook that is attempting to convey concrete scientific information in language that is appropriate for our modern, materialistic, scientific age. And that's simply not the case. Like, that's not what Genesis is. That's not who it was written to. That's not what it's designed to do. So if you uh, go back and you read ancient uh, Near Eastern creation accounts from those cultures uh, that lived uh, right around the Israelites in the time that this was written, what you'll notice immediately is that Genesis is far more similar to other Near Eastern creation accounts than it is to any form of modern or scientific textbook that we have today. For example, in nearly all ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, the Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Sumerian, and, and others, they almost all start with this sort of dark, non-functional state in the universe. And the problem is that things aren't functioning. They're not set up for ordered beauty. And then in each account, uh, the gods or some deity shows up and begins to order it. And, and they begin separating out different elements. And they separate out the sky and the water and the land so that they become distinct. And, and then the, the sun and the moon and the stars are created. And in almost all of them, human beings are then created. And they're often made uh, out of clay or out of mud or the breath of a deity. In all these different accounts. And, and if you go and read those, at first it's kind of jarring, right? Because you start reading them and you say, well, wait a second. These like predate Genesis, and did the writer, did, did Moses just like copy and paste their stuff? Like was he just like ripping off all of these other accounts? I mean, is Genesis really an inspired book that tells us something true? And it kind of starts to shake your faith a little bit. For a lot of people, not for everyone. They see that correlation and, and it kind of shakes you. So what's, what's the deal with that? What, what is Genesis? But the, the beauty and value in Genesis, first I'll say this, we stand firm on the assertion that Genesis is true and inspired. And that the significance of Genesis is not what it had in common with other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, but rather the significance lies in the way that it differed from other Near Eastern creation accounts because you put them side by side and what you see is that Genesis was actually this subversive, countercultural, confrontational document that undermined the narratives of other Near Eastern creation accounts and helped uh, the people of God establish themselves as a, with a clear identity and, and good theology as people who were distinct from everyone else. Uh, for example, in looking at the differences in the neighboring accounts of all these other creation stories, uh, creation was often made by the gods and, and, and often multiple of them somehow. And creation was made for the gods to serve them. 
within that picture, humanity is then created mostly as slaves to take what's in physical creation and bring it to the gods to serve them. So you think about how pagan uh, temple worship would have worked, right? You're taking stuff from the created world and you're giving it to the gods because they need what they've created to sort of sustain themselves. That was the basic narrative that was being told about the purpose and reason for human existence. And within that, you get all these details. And many of the times, uh, women within the account uh, are framed as accidents. Like the gods made a mistake and and then had to redo it and then they got men. Or that, that women were created as slaves for men and men are slaves to the gods. And, and so much of creation is deified and you have the sun god and the moon god and the god of the harvest and the god of animals and the god of reproduction and, and you see all of that at play and we exist to serve them. And, and none of these ancient accounts, I would argue, are trying to make scientific statements about how the world was actually made but rather they are full of metaphysical statements that identify the purpose and role and function and meaning behind the things that we see. What was God or the God's role in uh, creation and the activities that we see? And so the Israelites are inundated by all of these foreign narratives. And they were forced to, to serve as slaves for centuries. They're, they're forced to uh, absorb this propaganda. They're forced to worship the sun and moon stars as deity. And, and they're up against all of this stuff. It's infiltrated their worldview. And then they get the book of Genesis. And in that context... Genesis would have spoken a clear message into their world that might have sounded something like this. My goodness, God created the heavens and the earth, not the gods, and he is eternal and sovereign over the universe. He cannot be defeated by his enemies. He cannot be dethroned. No power in heaven or on earth can overtake him. And God created the universe and life and planet earth. And all of it was created not to serve the pagan gods, but actually to create an environment where human beings could flourish. It's to support human life, not divine life. God's divine life isn't dependent on what he created. Next slide. And the sun and the moon and the stars, the Egyptians forced us to worship those as gods. But those aren't gods. They were created by the one true God for human flourishing. And we aren't slaves. We're image bearers and partners with God. And we were created to receive his love and walk in relationship with him and reflect his love and beauty and glory into the visible world. And women aren't accidents or slaves. They are equal image bearers who came not from the foot of the man but from the side, representing equality. And it would go on and on and on. It, receiving Genesis for the first time would have blown their minds. It would have blown to shreds all of the other metaphysical propaganda that they had been forced to absorb. Now, is everything that I just put up there true? 
Yes. Every word of it was true. And that's what the Israelites would have been hearing when they received the book of Genesis. God communicated to them through a language and a genre that that made sense. And the message they received from it is just as true and is just as relevant as it has ever been. But those truths were communicated through a medium and a genre that we aren't accustomed to. To a culture far removed from our own. He communicated in a way that made sense to them, using the worldview of their day. So, to take all of that information on Genesis and run it back through the the double-layer cake analogy, Everything that Genesis was communicating to the original audience was received in the form of revelation, answering metaphysical questions, making statements of purpose and identity and role and function and meaning. That was the value to the original audience, and and that should be our value, our primary value today. It was primarily a revelation of meaning and of purpose. And notice that science could never give us the metaphysical answers that Genesis gives us. Does Genesis also convey scientific information that that we can take to the bank in, in our modern scientific age? We'll talk about that next week. That's a matter of ongoing debate, whether it's communicating something scientific to us or not. Within the Christian community, we're trying to discern that. How do we interpret Genesis scientifically? But in either case, how God did stuff is never the focus of the text. It's never focused on the mechanics. It's never focused on the mean. Not in the slightest is the author concerned with that. What they're concerned with is not how, but why. Why is God doing it? What role does God play? What's the meaning? And what does it mean to be human? We're going to unpack that from the book of Genesis. Whatever it was communicating to the original audience, we have to allow it to communicate to us. And and the rest makes for some really fun discussions along the way. But the argument is that Genesis is not a textbook and it was not written to to a literal materialistic culture and it's not focused on how God did stuff. Rather, it is primarily revelation that answers metaphysical questions that science could not answer in a million years. Are, Are you with me? And what that does is twofold. First, it it should prime our eyes and ears to read Genesis primarily for the revelation, for the deeper reality which it unmasks. The metaphysical is where the value lies. That should affect the way that we approach it. Now, that doesn't rule out any 
interpretation of Genesis, but it means we come at the book with a certain slant, with a certain eye, looking for a certain type of information. And the second thing that that does, for me personally, is that it releases the the tension that, that we sense between faith and science. It actually takes, it shifts the conversation and says science can expand as much as it wants to. And, and our revelation and understanding of God can understand, expand as much as it wants to. And, and they do not threaten each other. In fact, they were intended to feed and fuel off of each other. Our belief in God should be the foundation of our science. And if science is done right, it should propel us into the state of wonder and awe and ultimately worship of the living God. It should invigorate our faith. We'll end with this. Isaac Newton said it this way. He said, He who thinks half-heartedly will not believe in God, but he who really thinks has to believe in God. The more you engage in in what God has created, the more you should be led to that conclusion. And God's intent is that we would climb Mount Spokane or look at a picture of deep space or observe a cell under a microscope with, with all its impossible intricacies or engage in physics, or cosmology, or genetics, and be blown away by what we find there. We were intended to sit back and marvel at the sheer impossibility of life, at the intricacies of a cell, at at the mystery of, of, of conscious beings, at the miracle of a human being growing out of a tiny, you came from a tiny speck into everything that you are. What we see and observe in the physical, visible realm was meant to usher us into a state of wonder and awe and worship of the invisible God. All of it, is designed to evoke worship, to cause our hearts to beat faster, to point to the mystery, to to stir up a hunger in us for the living God who's holding all of this together. The breath in your lungs, where does it come from? What's sustaining it? We observe the breath and, and, and we're compelled into worship. And, and that's what we're going to do next. Uh, let's pray. Jesus, uh, we uh, look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith. And we say, first and foremost, um, we want to express our gratitude for calling us by name, for calling us to a life of faith. And we recognize that when we open the scriptures, <laughs> Uh, that, that we can look out and observe things in physical reality, but when we open the scriptures, we see that faith is something different. Uh, faith is a way of seeing beyond. 
It's a way of grasping what's happening at the metaphysical level. And we delight in the fact that you've invited us into both. You've invited us as, as people, as humanity, to observe and study the, the created universe and to marvel at it and, and to let the signposts point to you. And you call us as human beings, every man, woman, and child, you, you call into a life of faith. And, and what is faith? Hebrew says, it, it's, it's confidence in what we cannot see. It's the ability to see beyond the physical created world and to grasp the deeper things of God. And so we come to you, Jesus, um, in faith, but also asking for more. And, and we know that even faith is a gift from you. And so we ask for that gift this morning, um, that yes, you would stoke our interest toward uh, studying and observing uh, the, the natural created world, um, but, but also that you would grow us in our faith, that, that our understanding of, of your revelation would expand, that our ability to see beyond the physical and into the deeper realm. God, would you open the eyes of our heart to that place, to the secret place, to the place where you are, here and now, operating in plain sight, but not visible to our eyes. Would you draw our attention to that? And so God, whether we're um, at the top of Mount Spokane, or we're opening up Genesis, we're just sitting quietly and praying. I pray that no matter what we're engaged in, it, it would compel us toward lives of worship where we stand in awe of you and in wonder of you and who you are and the role you play and the meaning that you've embedded in everything and even the way that you've done it. We stand in awe of you, Jesus. And while all mu not all worship is musical worship, but as we, um, as a community, as we engage in musical worship now, I pray that you would meet us in this place. I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart. I pray that you would grow us in faith because if we only have observations of the physical world, we will be so, so stunted in our understanding of reality. And yet, children can come to you and have their eyes wildly opened to what's going on in the deeper reality. God, would we come to you like children now? And, and would you grow us in our faith? Would you grow our vision to see beyond the physical and to understand what you're up to? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.